Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading for this upcoming Easter Sunday is going to be Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 6. We have been looking at the, that passage over the course of the last two Sunday evening services that are hopefully going to be made available upon this podcast. We're going to use our scripture reading as a means of review of the three stanzas we've already covered of this beautiful five stanza song. And so at the end of 52 and 13 to 15, we have that first stanza, which speaks of a divinely exalted servant who is humiliated such that he doesn't even look like a human. We're talking about God taking on human flesh and then having that human flesh used and marred and wounded in such a way that it no longer looks human. And then from that, he sprinkles many nations so that kings will stand in silent awe of him, worshiping him because they have been cleansed by him. But they then start to speak in the second stanza, 53, 1 through 3, and talk about how not many believe. And in fact, they, in their natural state, didn't believe because the servant, divinely exalted as he was, came in human form in humility. Jesus wasn't constantly looking around, showing his glory, but had no form, nor comeliness, nor beauty that we should desire him. He looked just like any one of us, and so we rejected him and despised him. But the reality, and what is the central stanza of Isaiah 53, 53, 4 through 6, is that though we didn't understand it in our natural state, now we can declare that his suffering was not for anything that he had done, but for what we had done. That he was dying as our substitute so that by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. We have, as Derek Kidner says, grace wholly answering sin in that we all have sinned, but the iniquity of all of our sin has been laid upon him. And so for all who believe, we have life everlasting. The scripture reads Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 6. Behold, my servant shall deal very prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Their kings shall shut their mouths at him 
For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Like being reminded of the fact that we're here as a family trying to pursue Christ together, not as a performance seeking to entertain. And so uh, we go back in thinking about Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 12. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Father, we thank you that we have a reason to pursue you together and that we have a reason by which we can stand before you for a reason to 
pray to you and talk to you. We thank you for what we celebrate in the fact that you made us away and brought us back to yourself. And it wasn't through anything we had done, not by any works of righteousness, but according to your own mercy and grace. And according to the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, vindicated in his resurrection. And help us today as we think about these words in Isaiah 53 to reflect upon Jesus' death and resurrection, to rejoice in our hope that it grants us, to rejoice in the suffering itself. May it also then continue to lead those who haven't cause for rejoicing in it, to accept it, to turn to Christ. And I thank you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we work through Isaiah 53, 7 through 12, I want us to be regularly thinking back and coming back to two questions. Who killed Jesus and why? Who killed the suffering servant and why was he killed? The first stanza we look at today, the fourth stanza in the uh, servant song, looks at the death of the servant, which is a little strange because verses four through six also looked at the death of the servant. But now we're given something like a second account. Verses seven through nine again say this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now we can certainly say, without even really thinking about it, that he was certainly afflicted. Prophet Isaiah throughout the song has already talked about him being wounded and bruised, having stripes and chastisements placed upon him. He most certainly was afflicted. But here we also have something that's added first to say that he was oppressed. Oppressed and oppression. These words are associated with a wrongful use of authority. Someone with authority being tyrannical in how it's applied it gives us indication that there was an injustice to the oppression and affliction. It shouldn't have been that way that it was. And when we zoom forward to think about Jesus crucified, we can see certainly a lot of tyrannical use of authority. High priests rush him into a trial 
convict him of crimes without any witnesses, something that's not just foreign to our ideas, but abominable within the Mosaic law as well. Rush him to speak against himself and use that to justify killing him and then sending him to the Roman court so that he might indeed be crucified. Pilate has his own oppression considered within this because he sees that he's innocent, but instead of releasing him, sends him to Herod. Maybe it can be someone else's political problem. And Herod does the same thing, sending it back to Pilate. Neither of them releasing the innocent man, but instead in their tyrannical use of authority, sends him to be afflicted while Pilate washes his hands as if that cleanses him from killing an innocent man. And as he's oppressed and afflicted, he opens not his mouth. Now when you and I are unjustly treated, at least our instinct, if not our actual response, is to do something about it. To become defensive and say, that's not how it should be. Look at my innocence. Or even to lash out in accusation. To accuse over and over again about how terrible this thing is. But Jesus is not violent nor defensive. At each of his trials, he doesn't answer a word. And when he had a chance to lash out against those who are killing him, he instead screams, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He opens not his mouth. And Isaiah tells us more, gives us an image of what that looks like by saying he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Now lambs could be slaughtered for many reasons, but we're probably looking at a lamb being led to the slaughter sacrificially. We've had evidence of the sprinkling of blood in 52.15. We've also consistently had substitution languages like the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. But if you think about sheep being led to the slaughter being led to be sheared, in either of those situations, you wouldn't hear a lot of bleeding or screaming. They're not aware enough of what's going on in order to actually scream out and say, we don't want this. In the same manner as a sheep silently submits to the death, so Jesus doesn't open his mouth. But the difference is, Jesus is aware of what's happening. He fully well knows that he's about to die. And still he opens not his mouth. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He has the power to lay it down and he has the power to bring it back up again. In essence, he's combining the initiative of the priest and the sacrifice with the submissiveness of the sheep willing to die, and indeed taking the initiative to lay down his own life. In that instance, 
the answer to the question of who killed Jesus is no one. He laid down his own life. He chose to do it willingly. Still leaves a bit of a question at this point in the text of why. But as it keeps going, we're reminded again of the oppression in verse 8. He was taken from prison and judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now you probably, if you're reading in a translation other than the King James, you probably already recognize that there are interpretive questions that abound in this particular verse. But the general summary that we shouldn't lose as we get lost in the weeds is that the servant is dying unjustly, but ultimately as a substitute. Dying for a purpose, for the transgression of the Lord's people. You get into the first line, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Or if you're in other translations, you can talk about by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This has to do with how you interpret the prepositional phrase, and particularly the preposition. And the idea does seem to be, within the song as a whole, and I lean only slightly this direction, that Jesus and the servant here, this servant Jesus, is being oppressed. The manner in which he is dying is unjust. It's by oppression by an unjust trial and oppressive judgment. And he's then being taken away, euphemistic for death. And so he's taken away by this oppression and judgment. And who shall declare his generation? If you're reading in the ESV or the NASB, the question that I just read would continue through the end of the verse. Now, I also lean towards thinking that the question ends where it ends in the King James in front of, in front of me. Who shall declare his generation? That's, I think, because the statement that starts with four makes more sense than as a couple line in the Hebrew poetry. He was cut off. He was stricken. But then there's still a question of what is meant by the word translated generation. And what is this question indicating? Could mean, as for his generation, who considers, who declares, who cares? In that instance, a restatement of verses 1 through 3, that no one esteemed that this was a big deal. No one believed the report. Or it could be, as for his seed, as for his offspring, who can declare it? Having been cut off from the land of the living, he has no physical descendants who can be declared later on. Again, under a very slight, I lean towards that second. As for his offspring, who can declare it? Why? He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, was he stricken? 
cut off out of the land of the living. He's no longer in the land of the living, but instead is dead. But in that very thing, it's said more dramatically than simply saying he's no longer alive. It said he was cut off from the land of the living. There's a, a violence to it. There's a prematurity to it as if he was cut off in the prime of life. He was indeed killed, cut off. The persecutors mentioned in, or implied in verse 7. The persecutors mentioned and implied in at least my understanding of the beginning of verse 8 have cut him off from the land of the living. But even still, it was for the transgression of my people that he was stricken. Regardless of the injustice that is perpetrated, regardless of how many people understand it or not, he's cut off and stricken for good. Yahweh has his plan of working out this gross injustice for the justice and salvation of his people. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And as he dies, we then move into verse 9 and find him being buried. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, as we look at that saying, we find two different things that are very odd, strange about it. First is that the rich and the wicked would hardly be buried together. You think about a, a grave with the wicked, thinking about common criminals. You're thinking about a common grave with other criminals. You're expecting a rich man to be buried sumptuously. Now, there are ways of continuing to read this as if great, wicked and rich are supposed to be taken synonymous to explain one another. But it does seem more likely that this is intended as a contrast. There is an intent to bury him with the wicked. But instead, it was with a rich man that he found his burial. As Edward J. Young indicates in his commentary, what was to be given to the servant by men was dishonor and disgrace. What God would give him was honor in his burial. They intended to make his grave with the wicked ones, but it was with a rich man that he found his burial and death. And that particular way in which I've just explained it pulls out the second strange thing. The wicked are wicked ones, it's in the plural. But the rich is just a rich man. It's in the singular. If you were expecting just to compare or even give a, a uh, direct synonymity towards wicked and rich, you'd expect both to be plural or both to be singular. The fact that one is plural and the other singular seems to directly connect us to the fact that this is not just talking about that. 
but passing into the realm of prediction. They were intending to bury him with the common criminals that he was killed with, but instead it was Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, secret disciple of Jesus who came and asked for his body so that he could borrow his own tomb and so be with a rich man in his death. God beginning the process of vindication and honoring, as is stated in the rest of verse 9, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He was killed, but there was no violence within him. There was no deceit within his mouth. He was completely and entirely innocent. And I think this latter statement that there is no deceit within his mouth is particularly helpful for us to see his complete innocence. While I don't think it would be right to say that we all lie all the time, I definitely do think that there is some wisdom found in the doctor in the words of Dr. House that everybody lies. Yet neither was any deceit in his mouth. Never so much as a little white lie. Because he was completely and entirely innocent. Sinless. Perfect. And I think it also is highlighting by the repetition of the word mouth that we saw twice in verse 7. Not just that he was innocent through the whole time, but that he had an innocent death. Without a violent lashing out. Without lying or deceiving even in that moment by continuing to entrust himself to the one who judges justly, who vindicated him in his burial and beyond. Which is where the final stanza takes us, verses 10 through 12. The vindication of the servant. We read it again. Yet it pleased the Lord to grieve him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So far as we've interacted with the question of who killed Jesus and why. We have seen no direct answer for why. We've seen the possibility that Jesus laying down his own life. And we've seen the possibility 
of the persecutors killing him for their own particular reasons. But now the persecutors fade from view. We don't see them again in verses 10 to 12. In this crescendo and climax of this servant song. Instead, what we first read is yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. It is Yahweh then that is definitively declared in this verse to bruise the servant. To further have put him to grief, that is, sicknesses and pains. And this isn't directly new within the servant song. Verse 4, the perspective of natural man is that he is stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In verse 6, the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all, just as the priest would lay the sin of the animal, sin of the people upon the animal before killing it. And now here, it is the will of the Lord to bruise him. Although the King James is correct to say it more strongly, it pleased the Lord, it delighted the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 1.11 uses the same terminology to say that Yahweh takes no delight in burnt sacrifices. But he does take delight in the bruising of his son, probably also pulling on some of that sacrificial language. That his son being the better sacrifice is one that actually is delightful to him. It's a pleasing aroma. But what we definitely can say is that as John Piper declares, in the very moment when God's curse rested most heavily on Jesus because of sin, the father's love for his son reached explosive proportions. But why would it please the Lord to kill the servant? Let's keep reading. The rest of verse 10. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In the outer frame of that particular lines, we hear about the servant's soul being made an offering for sin. So the pleasure of the Lord prospers in his hand. In being the sin offering, Yahweh's pleasure stands. It becomes the suffering sacrifice for us, so Yahweh delights. As is expanded in verses 11 and 12, the reason why Yahweh would kill his servant becomes clear. He wants the sin offering that allows for people to come back into fellowship with him. Whereas our sheep 
our actions like sheep being led astray, turning to our own way, pursuing our own interest and being selfish and everything has led for a wall of separation. He needs a sin offering, a perfect, blameless sin offering. And when that sin offering is made, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But of course, that's not all that'll happen. There's parallel lines in the middle describe what happens for the servant himself. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. Now, this is one of many hints of the resurrection within Isaiah 53. Because he's just been bruised and put to grief, which throughout the rest of Isaiah 53 has meant that he has poured out his soul unto death. It's referred to the fact that he has been killed and cut out from the land of the living. Yet though he has been made a sin offering in this way, he is seeing his seed, and his days are being prolonged. And there's an indication of blessing and vindication coming upon the servant and that he gets to have offspring and long life. The offspring here is different than the offspring we talked about in verse 8, as it's not physical. It's offspring of the cross. It's sons and daughters. It's I and the children God has given me, as Isaiah said of himself in chapter 8, and the author of Hebrews applies of Jesus. He has this offspring of the cross and a lengthened life that stands as being the definition of blessing given in the, in the Proverbs. And in contrast to the judgment he received in verse 8, when there was no generation to declare, and he was cut off possibly, and likely in the crime of life. And so he has vindication as he dies on the cross with his resurrection, seeing seed in long life. Any favor that was lost was only temporary. And then it keeps going. And verse 11 tells us, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. I think it is awkward to take by his knowledge with the following line. So I'm following the New English translation to suggest that it goes with this introductory part. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. He's going to be in anguish of his very self, but he's going to see and he will be satisfied by what he finds, by the knowledge that he has. Indeed, John 19, 28 through 30 gives us such a picture. Jesus, knowing that all things are accomplished, then asks so that scripture would be fulfilled and says, I thirst. And after then, scripture is fulfilled as he says, I thirst. He then fundamentally and powerfully declares, it is finished. 
He has seen, and by his knowledge that all things have been accomplished, he can then be satisfied and declare, it is finished, it is over. I have now endured the cross and have the joy set before me. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Father and Son are here involved in showing a satisfaction in the very death of Jesus on the cross. And as God continues speaking, he says, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Why is it such a pleasing thing? Why is it any sa uh, satisfaction for father and son in this, what doesn't really seem like a good Friday? My righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's a fancy term that even was in our title today of imputation. Not just imputation, but double imputation. The idea of imputation would be to ascribe the qualities of one person and put it on another. And here it is. First, with the righteousness of the servant placed upon us. My righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. I don't stand here today with any righteousness of my own, but only an alien righteousness that has Jesus's righteousness placed upon me. A righteousness that has been secured, not in any works that I have done, but by faith in Jesus Christ and the fact that he has died for me. I stand before God. I come before him in prayer one day I'd stand before his judgment seats and will be treated not with my own sins and in accordance with them, but in accordance with the righteousness of Christ with which I am clothed that has been imputed to me. My sin, on the other hand, was imputed to Christ on the cross. He shall bear their iniquities. My sin is 100% upon him. He bore it all so that none of it again can come upon me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for it was placed entirely upon him. All the wrath God had rightly for my sin that is distasteful towards him. All of that wrath has been poured out on Christ. My sin I bear no longer. As we also quoted last Good Friday, it is as Octavius Winslow has once written, Christ took your cup of grief, your cup of the curse, and pressed it to his lips and drank it to the dregs. Then he filled it with his sweet, pardoning love and gave it back to you to drink and to drink 
forever. Dear listeners, don't consider that this automatically comes to you because you were born as humans. It's not automatic. It comes to those with faith in Jesus. It comes to those of us who turn from going everyone to his own way and instead go to the shepherd outside the camp. Go to Jesus who was crucified bearing our sins. Put our hope and trust and our belief firmly in him. Turn to him and believe in him. That is the hope. That is where this double imputation comes from. That is how you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, with your sin placed upon him. Turn to him and believe. Jesus' vindication continues. Yahweh continues to speak in verse 12 and says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The vindication continues in this inheritance, and particularly this inheritance that's described as a plunder and a spoil. It's a victor's inheritance. Christ has indeed been victorious. He defeated death by dying and showed that he defeated death by rising again. But even here, he doesn't just have this portion that is shared with the great. He then divides it with the strong. The word strong could also refer to numerous, but if it does indeed refer to strong, it seems to refer to those who are strong through faith in him. And it shows that even in his vindication, he's still concerned to minister to those who he has accounted righteous by his actions. He just shares the spoil. And of course, it does continue to point out. He poured his soul into death, as we will just read in a moment. And yet he has an inheritance. He has a portion in a spoil. And he has that portion in the spoil because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He voluntarily poured out his soul, pulled out his very self unto death. And in that death, he was numbered with transgressors, died as a criminal, in fact, between two criminals, bearing the curse of God's wrath against our sin. And in that very thing, he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, our sin is imputed to him as he dies. So that there's only two places that punishment for sin comes in the cross of Jesus and in hell for those who do not believe. And now, having died, he makes intercession for us. In his vindication, in his glory, still ministering to us who believe. Praying regularly for us. Pleading our cause and making it very obvious that there will be no condemnation. We have so much beauty to relate to, 
and to understand and rejoice in as the innocence of this servant has been imputed to us. So we ultimately share in his inheritance as he still intercedes for us. Father, I do ask that you would lead us to rejoice more in that reality and to celebrate the death and resurrection today and every day. It is our one hope in life and death. And we come very glad that you have done this work in us. So, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?